the uh, metta sutta, metta being loving kindness whose roots uh, in language, metta are friendliness, which seems very within reach, friendliness at bottom. It is said in the metta sutta that we should cherish all living beings as a mother would cherish her child, her only child, omitting none. And among all those beings is the one who wears your own name tag, is yourself. And it's often challenging even most challenging, to extend that stance of friendliness, good wishes, compassion, loving kindness, decency, fairness, and benevolence to the being who is oneself sitting here in this place at this time. It's interesting that in evolution, thinking of the topic of this retreat as a kind of framework, that as our ancestors evolved, a lot of research that indicates that certainly over the last several million years, uh, as it became more and more important to, to function well together as a group, becoming increasingly the village it takes to raise a child. Children, human children, who had increasingly extended uh, childhoods so that their brain had time to fully mature, and during which period of time the, period, the time of vulnerability and dependence of children was extended. And therefore, the vulnerability and, in a sense, dependence of their mothers and parents was also extended. So it became more and more important to develop compassion for others, certainly others uh, in the band. It became literally vital for survival pass on genes that would pass on genes to have compassion for others. That kept them alive, the compassion for others who shared genes with oneself. And yet it's interesting that compassion for oneself doesn't seem so necessary for raw, driven, survival, you know, escaping predators, finding food, you know, reptiles, fish, creatures with very little of the neural architecture, uh, if any, uh, for compassion, loving kindness, more heartfelt feelings, are still very motivated to survive. So it's an odd reflection, actually, to appreciate that compassion for others may be, in some sense, more our inclination, biologically, than compassion for ourselves, which speaks to the importance of paying attention to compassion for oneself and to cultivate it in an intentional, deliberate sort of way. So with that reflection in the in the background, and letting it move to the background. We'll do a guided practice here in self-compassion. And <clears throat> there are different ways into self-compassion. You may have experienced self-compassion practices uh, in other settings with other teachers. Uh, and I'll do it here in a way that is based somewhat on the neurology of uh, warm-heartedness. Uh, and we'll do it in three steps. And like any practice, see what is there. You know, practices are experiments. Uh, 
have good intentions and then see what happens. So, here we go. Being present here in the body, in this time, with experience occurring, sounds, touches, sensations, emotions, thoughts, as well as the kind of background wallpaper of the mind, kind of backdrop of experience, all included, all allowed. with that receptivity as a foundation, we're going to deliberately uh, open to, encourage gently, without any kind of tension around it. May it arise, in effect. We're gonna deliberately call forth three qualities of the heart, three states of being, states of mind. So the first of these is to gradually open to an experience of one quality or another, different aspects of feeling cared about. I'll mention, as I believe I've done before, five aspects of the experience of feeling cared about, any one of which are fine. Uh, For example, you could call to mind ways in which you have been or are included. Part of a group, a team, a, a family, a book club, a sports team included, a gang of friends, perhaps a a couple, a relationship, a friendship. What's it feel like to feel included? Mindfulness of belonging. And as we explore these aspects of feeling cared about or anything else, you might find other thoughts arising, including the opposite. It's a natural process in the mind, simply noting it and then gently coming back to the focus here. It's a kind of absorption practice, exploring absorption in the experience of feeling cared about as an object of attention. I'll mention four other aspects and then be quiet for some moments. Another aspect of feeling cared about is feeling seen, empathized with, understood, or at least someone sincerely is trying to tune into you. This could be, again, beings in your life today or in the past, anything that could give rise to this object of attention, feeling cared about. Could be animal companions, pets, or spiritual beings or qualities. Whatever authentically, naturally, gently gives rise to this experience of one aspect or another of feeling cared about. A third aspect is feeling appreciated, valued, respected others who are glad for your contribution, who recognize it. Relationships in which this caring about you is occurring may well be very imperfect, but in at least one slice of the pie, of the factual nature of the relationship, you are cared about in that way. You matter in that way. 
to the other being, and you can feel it. Fourth aspect is to feel liked. On the receiving end of friendliness, it could be subtle or mild, on the zero to 10 scale, a one or a two or a 0.3, and it's still real. Perhaps affection or fondness coming toward you or affiliation, feeling liked. And the last, of course, cherished and loved. So I'll be quiet for some moments here as you explore and open to and allow in. See if there can be a softening around, a receiving of, a settling into yourself of these factually based experiences of being cared about. not clinging to these experiences of feeling cared about, rather receiving, allowing, opening to them much as you would wish for a friend, to open to experiences of feeling cared about that are authentic. Seeing if there can be 
a softening inside, a receiving, an allowing in. of this feeling of being cared about, not defending against it, letting yourself have it. Perhaps like you would encourage a friend or a child to let in the feeling of your hug. Recognizing how good it feels to be cared about. (coughs) Letting it feel good here and now. And then in the second step, letting the feeling of being cared about move to the background and focusing now on feeling caring, especially that aspect of caringness that is compassion, the wish that a being not suffer, usually along with warm-hearted feelings of tender concern and typically the desire to help, even if we can't. At least our wish is sincere. So bringing to mind someone, a friend, a pet, a a group of people, someone you know well or people you don't know so well that you have compassion for, naturally. You You have it in your heart, the wish that they not suffer. This now is the object of attention, the wish, the attitude, and the feeling of compassion, which you might strengthen with soft thoughts in the back of your mind, like, may you not suffer. It's all right if other wishes come to mind are naturally alongside compassion, such as, may you be happy, may you be okay. Or perhaps soft thoughts that are more specific, such as, may you find work, may you get through this divorce. May your chemotherapy go well. The thoughts in the mind can gradually recede if they do, and there could be simply a feeling of caring for the other, 
the suffering of the other or others could be there in the mind. <coughs> we suffer with in compassion and prominently in the mind. The feeling, the wish of tender concern. Perhaps rippling in waves, pulses through you, pervading the mind, radiating outward to the sides, to the front and the back, up and down in all directions. Marinating here in compassion. Letting compassion sink in, giving over to compassion, allowing it to fill you, to inhabit you. Allowing yourself to become, bit by bit, more compassionate through this opening. This landing and spreading inside you of compassion. And in the third step, knowing what compassion feels like in the body, in the heart, in the face, in the throat and eyes, knowing what compassion is like as a stance, an attitude. Can you now apply this compassion to yourself? Perhaps imagining yourself in front of you or having a bird's eye view of your life. Or perhaps just simply knowing yourself from the inside out or both. Being aware of your own stresses, pressures, unfulfilled longings, 
pain, illness, loss, concerns about others. And being aware of the suffering while prominently centering in compassion, the wish that's sincere that you not suffer in these ways, with feelings of warm-heartedness for yourself, a strength in your compassion for yourself, radiating outward, rippling out, sometimes experienced as, to yourself. Perhaps strengthened by soft thoughts in the back of the mind, like, may I not suffer? Or more specific thoughts. And it's okay to include subtle forms of tension or anxiety or irritability. May I not be so worried about work? May this pain in my back pass away or may I be more at peace with this pain in my back? May I be all right with this loss. It's okay if other related wishes come to mind, like, may I be happy. May there be love in my life. It's all right. May my own chemotherapy go well. Aware of the pain, but mainly resting in a compassionate lovingness, supportiveness for this being you know so intimately yourself. You might find it helps to put a hand on your heart or perhaps a hand on your cheek as if the most loving, compassionate being, perhaps Tara, you know, an embodiment of compassion in some sense, is coming through you, coming into you, helping you bring this compassion to that sweet, often hurting being you are.
Letting in this compassion for yourself. Perhaps the sense of a softening inside, a receiving, What's it like to receive witnessing and good wishes? Even if the source of these is yourself. Taking a final minute here, exploring whatever you like, including perhaps a real letting in, a real taking in of whatever has been beneficial or fruitful for you here in this practice. Allowing and internalizing Whatever feels beneficial. And then finally disengaging from this practice of self-compassion and being mindful of whatever's there in, in awareness. Letting the experience reverberate Settle. Being here as it is.
Um, this is an opportunity now to comment on anything you'd like to share or ask questions, perhaps related to the practice we've done or most anything else. Um, please, first, you. Sure. Yeah. So, question about the distinctions that are commonly made. Uh, So, the distinctions that are commonly made is that compassion is the wish that a being not suffer, uh, in Pali, karuna, and it presupposes suffering. Whereas, metta, technically, you know, friendliness, the wish that a being be happy could include suffering, but it doesn't necessarily presuppose it. That's the classic distinction. And like any distinction, you know, it's to be used, you know, kind of judiciously as it is helpful. In real practice, they often tend to mush together and are kind of taught together. It does help, I think, to track distinctions of states of mind, you know, so we know what they are. And then we can be more adept and mindful in our relationship to them. That's the the distinction. Did that speak to your question? Okay. Good. Thank you. Uh, Great. Please. I think always looking at the fruits, right? Were there fruits? What were the results? So perhaps it was helpful for you. Um, you know, there, as you probably know, many there are these famous Zen stories that are very dramatic, which people meditate on the edge of a cliff, right? To stay awake or in a tall tree. Um, I think what you're getting at as well, more broadly, is how is it helpful to deliberately do practices that draw us into certain states, whether it's yoga or um, walking on a log where we really need to be in the present moment, you know, or hooking ourselves up to a neurofeedback brain machine, you know, Holosync or something like that, right? It's a broader point. Or do pranayama, breath of fire, to induce states and then see what happens then or to give up eating after uh, noon, right? See the broadening of the inquiry? And uh, I observed that the Buddha recommended many different kinds of practices, which I think is a way of respecting diversity. Diversity of types of people and uh, diversity of settings and purposes, and allowing a certain resourcefulness and creativity and even playfulness in oneself, I find helpful in practice. Um, That said, once we induce a state of some kind, walking on a rickety log or saying to ourselves, I'm going to become really absorbed in the breath and renounce everything else for the next 45 minutes, right? At some point, again, I think this is authentic traditional instruction as well, we let it go, you know? 
we, we aim and then we let it go and see what happens. And uh, we be careful about being too skillful with the mind. I really have to watch out for that. You know, and I observe how often is there a subtle little inner teacher talking. Like it, which of course is easy to succumb to because it sounds so wise, right? <laughs> you know, and maybe it is, but like, do I really need three or four of those per minute? We, we probably don't. And you might explore what is it like to just say, look, it's all right. You know, I'm going to kind of like, I'm going to go on a diet here with inner teaching, letting it pass. I'll say that. And then the last thing I just want to say and use this opportunity for is to um, comment on neurological diversity about in- attention. And uh, there's a normal temperamental range in which some people are, uh, and, in, and in general, tend to be kind of cautious and restrained and, and inert, more this way, sometimes perhaps a little anxious or even rigid. The other end of the spectrum, we have more spirited, sometimes ADHD end of the range, you know. And you could think of it, I do, metaphorically, as turtles at one end and jackrabbits at the other, with a lot of tweeners in the middle. It's all right. It's, you know, and there are variations on this. And um, As we evolved uh, in bands that bred mainly internally it, and competed with other bands for scarce resources over millions of years uh, with generational turnover, you know, every 15 years or so, and back in the day, certainly every 20 years or so. So during that time, it, it promoted survival to have diversity of temperament inside the band. Because bands that had some turtles, some jackrabbits, and quite a few tweeners could out-compete all turtle, all jackrabbit, or all tweener bands. Which is a really, I think, useful way to appreciate jackrabbititis, which can get pathologized in our culture. Because very often, people, including jackrabbity people, um, are stuck in turtle pens being trained by turtles to be better turtles. <laughs> Ordinary conventional schools, corporate cubicle jobs, etc. And that's tough, including tough when the culture is kind of training us to be more jackrabbity with this intense amount of stimulation we're continually exposed to. And so I don't think of ADHD as a D. I don't think it's a disorder. Sometimes it's a problem of fit. If pragmatically you're a jackrabbit stuck in a turtle pen, what do you do? And in contemplative practice, I think it's fair to say, certainly in Theravadan Buddhism, there's a very strong theme of, you know, turtles training turtles to be better turtles in turtle pens. But what if you're more of a jackrabbit? How do you adapt practice to your own nature? Speaking of evolving together, how do you do that? And there I think it's really important to have a kindness and a practical wisdom and to be honest with yourself what you're doing it for. And if it works for you to have a more stimulating object of attention than the sensations at the breath and kind of a square centimeter of the upper lip, um, it's okay. Be honest, obviously, am I just being lazy here or, you know, not? Maybe it helps to use an object of attention that's more stimulating, such as the whole torso or the whole body of breath, or an emotion like loving-kindness or gratitude or peacefulness, you know, a feeling or an image. That's okay. Uh, maybe it helps to move more, have practice maybe more about movement, walking, and to not feel like a bad yogi as a result. And then work the edge. You know, it's, nobody has ADHD playing video games because it's so stimulating. So, you know, we work the edge. It, it trains attention to work with objects that are a bit of a stretch. We have to build a little bit of muscle to sustain focus on. And maybe what we do is we start out with quite stimulating objects of attention if that is serving our practice. It's a vehicle, good vehicle for our practice. And then over time, we play around with less stimulating. Then maybe we go back to more stimulating or other. And I just want to really name that as an important kind of inclusiveness and um, pragmatism in contemplative practice. Beautifully put. I, I totally agree. Good. All right, please. I'm finding myself uh, 
own. Um, I uh, I have some difficult external conditions where uh, my neighbor keeps hours that affect my sleeping, and so I'm wanting to practice metta for myself and and for him, and also finding myself with these kind of repeated thoughts of practicing what conversation to have to also try to change the ex external conditions and more requests for more respect and 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 that kind of going in the scoop of well, what can I say and what will they say um, and then there's this sort of fantasy of wishing that I was you know able to just have this pure pure meta that I would not be, my sleep would not be disturbed by anything. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm wondering about, um, maybe some about how to practice, mostly, mostly about how to practice. I think the first thing I would say to you is to acknowledge that that kind of rehearsal for what you're facing when you go home is perfectly natural and that you know that you should try to be as forgiving as possible of yourself when you get lost in those uh, dialogue uh, fantasies and um, that um, and to trust that you, you know, it, the practice itself will help reveal to you when you are in the situation, if, if you can hold your awareness and feel your body, feel your breath, that that will help guide you into the correct response or the response that will be most helpful for him and yourself as well. Um, but mostly to just, I mean, a lot of you probably are, are starting to tip towards, you know, scenarios of, of traveling home and being home, and uh, you're perfectly human. I mean, that's the, you're, you're trying to uh, plan uh, something that's going to turn out favorably for you, and, and, and so to forgive yourself if you're starting to tumble that way. I, uh, otherwise, I, I, no solution. Does, does he party into the night, or is it? <laughs> and you don't want to join the party? Is it? <laughs> it's a combination of uh, loud uh, working, uh, clanking working, that's probably involving also drugs that involve the working. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Try to have compassion for him. Okay. Perhaps one more person, is that, if that's okay. Great, please. together and it becomes like first together so I told myself let me stay with 
this word right now, and this word, and it was really, really hard. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I do is to not focus on my breath because that is not easy. So yeah. what I do is I think of myself as a, like a white vessel and I fill in colors. Okay. So <laughs> more I practice, more like fill colors. So eventually I end up being like extremely blue or red or whichever color I choose. So is there like anything else that I can actually do? Thankfully I'm not in a thought as well put together. I can do whatever I want. Kind of good. But is there anything else I can do to, you know, uh, to be more good at this? Right. So a couple things in what you're saying. Um, one is about how to steady the mind, given who we are. Who we are in terms of biology and then how we've been influenced by life to become who we are right now, right? And then also, I, I think in all that have, are things having to do with self-acceptance and, 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 how we, and self-criticism and how we are. So, um, two things. Um, William James, the godfather of American psychology, had an increasingly well-known line. He said, the education of attention would be the education par excellence above all others, because attention is so foundational, right? And uh, in addition to sort of practical matters of using attention to really hear what other people are saying or write something skillfully or you know, not get lost on the freeway or something, miss our exit, um, I've done that. Um, uh, you know, attention is the pipeline of brain change, which means self-change broadly defined. I'm, and I use the word self here to be clear, it's got two other questions, as person. But, you know, individual body-mind trajectory unfolding over time, distinct from presuming that there's an I in there. Okay, so in that kind of sense of it, uh, where attention rests does gradually change us. So getting some regulation of attention is very skillful, and the Buddha really emphasized, you know, steadiness of mind. So, how do we do that, given all the ways we are? Um, So, what I would just offer about that is attention to attention helps, sometimes called metacognition. Uh, There's a part in the brain, if you're interested in this stuff, because in part you're probably here because you are, some of you at least, it's called the interior, just means frontal cingulate cortex. It's a major area of research. It's kind of a little part of the brain that's that little watch her in her head that says, oh, wandering away, come back, you know. So encouraging that part and strengthening that part. And research does show that if we routinely practice uh, mindfulness meditation, including its focused attention aspects, uh, literally that part of the brain gets measurably thicker. It grows cortex there. Neurons that fire together, wire together. That's hopeful. It's good news. So I I think a little uh, awareness of that little kind of watcher, checker, be careful that watcher can, you know, crack the whip a little, especially in this culture, lighten up, bro, you know, it's like, chill, dude. I try to distinguish between self-guidance and self-criticism, very useful distinction, you know, more of a nurturing, loving quality there. Ooh, sweetie, time to come back, you know, it's like a little metaphor of a pet, you know, oh, come back, you know, you don't, you don't get, you don't punish the pet, but a little back here, okay, going back here. Okay, uh, so that's useful. Attention to attention. Strengthening that metacognitive capability to observe when the mind starts to wander and gently bring it back. One. Two, uh, you know, for very short periods of time, depending on the person, longer for turtles, shorter for jackrabbits, work that muscle. Okay? I'm going to pick an exhalation and really work at the edge, for me, of sustaining attention to the entire one exhalation from beginning to end and tracking subtleties of away, back, absorption. And then exhalation and inhalation. Cool, maybe that's the edge. We work right there at that edge. That's our, like I said last night, what's the next step? And then maybe it's two inhalation, exhalations in a row. For a minute or two or a little longer. I think there's a place for that. Third, very briefly, um, the more uh, it's curious to me that of the five jhana factors, the, in a context of an ascetic tradition, very willing to 
you know, be pretty miserable for the sake of awakening for all beings and oneself. Two of the five are bliss or rapture, piti, and joy, sukha, on the spectrum of happiness to contentment to tranquility. Wow, why is that? Super briefly, and I'll tell you more about it later if we have time. Um, what it means to steady the mind operationally in the brain, in large part, is to stabilize the, the contents of working memory, which are supported by circuits, regions, upper, outer, frontal area. They have like a gate. So when the gate is closed, we stay steadily on the object of attention. So what opens and closes the gate? Dopamine, major neurotransmitter. When dopamine drops, the gate opens, which makes sense because sense, dopamine tracks rewards. So if we're not feeling very rewarded, naturally enough, we're looking for other opportunity. Also, the gate pops open when dopamine spikes because there's a new reward opportunity, a greater reward opportunity. Aha. Okay. Well, interestingly, if you think about it, if there's sustained um, rewarding experience, which could be subtle, tranquility can feel very rewarding and luscious in its own way, or love or compassion, even though it's poignant and it hurts too, it's still oh, rewarding in a way. Okay, That stability of reward helps keep that gate closed so the mind is steadied. And to the extent that that feeling of reward pervades the mind, maybe even grows intense, like in rapture or bliss, the dopamine levels are so high, they're at a ceiling and they, you cannot get a spike. Isn't that kind of cool? Rapture, happiness, joy, wholesome states of mind, gladness, are skillful means. And be careful. Mind wants what it likes. Okay. But knowing what we're doing, yeah. So you might explore that as well, a more intensity of, you know, positivity or wholesome wholesome reward in the experience and explore how that could help steady the mind enough for now. Thank you very much. That was great. Uh, I was going to just tell him to slow down. That's good too. (laughs) (laughs) But I actually, yeah, I think that's actually a a practice of, uh, I think we could all use it, even here still in in the day that we're, we're uh, practicing together. Just be aware that you don't have to move so fast. Uh, that you can do things much slower, and uh, a lot more awareness will arise. So that's my one and a half cents worth. <laughs> so we have uh, a period of walking, and. Uh, Mindful movement. <laughs> have a have a great morning and uh